let's go ahead and get started with the word of prayer. Okay. Let's pray. So gracious and loving God, we just look to you yet again on this particular day and as we start this particular study, and we just thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and to learn to be among wise counsel as we study your word alongside nonviolent words and actions and leading of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We pray that you be with us yet again, being our listening, being our speaking, being our meditating. Help us to really take in everything that we hear today and not just today, but in the days and weeks and months yet to come. Inspire us, shape us, mold us, challenge us, change us. We ask you, oh God, in Jesus name, amen. Pastor Damien, I will turn it over to you. Thank you for leading us today. Well, look at the idea of seeing violence differently. Um, one of the things that I know that oftentimes when we think of the idea of violence and nonviolence, um, certain things come to mind and most immediately physicality uh, often comes to mind. Uh, but one of the things that I want to look at tonight as we wrestle with this idea is begin with Luke 4.18. Uh, the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, and of course, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, so, first off, as we look at that text, I'm going to go back and kind of you know leave it, leave it up for a second. I want you to look at it. I want you to die just for a moment. Um, and I would love to hear in your reflection, what comes to mind uh, when you um, hear this text, when you read this text, uh, when you allow it to sit with you for a second, what comes to mind? What happens? What do you see? What do you think um, as you um, read this text from Luke 4.18? Uh, feel free to put in the chat, you know, what do you hear? You know, what do you... What are you thinking? What happens to you um, as you hear this text? Feel free to share in the chat. Okay. So Considering those thoughts, let's go forward. So what do we know about this text? Number one, Jesus reading from Isaiah 61.1 and 58.6, we know we know that. Uh, and these are words of pro these, these words prophesied of Jesus' ministry to the people in distress, the poor, the captives, who were at that time war prisoners, the blind and the oppressed. So it's, it's we can ascertain that Jesus is actually speaking to a condition, right? Um, and thirdly, Jesus saw himself as coming with good news for the world's troubled people. The acceptable year of the Lord, uh, of course, was not, of course, you know, any calendar year, um, but it's a way of referring to an era of salvation. So this text is speaking to, um, again, a condition of those who are, are in distress, poor, captives, um, those who are oppressed, those who are again, suffering some kind of issue and and wrestling with some kind of cultural concern. So um, I wanna pause here for a moment and allow us to kind of hear um, what, what how, do, how can this look from a, an economic perspective? 
um, when we look at what were Dr. King's words uh, on this matter? Are we supposed to be hearing this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hear? There's no audio. Yeah. Okay, hold on one second. Let's let me fix that. Okay, I'm into it. There we go. Okay. the Negro. I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 1963 through the Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln. It gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. What is it about the Negro? So for a moment, before we go further, I want to pause here. And I want I would love to hear from at least two or three of you, what is your reaction to hearing the text and then hearing Dr. King's words on the issue of oppression and being poor. What 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 happens as you hear the text and as you hear Dr. King's words? Or put in the chat.
and I'll speak at once. Feel free to unmute yourselves and speak. <laughs> Okay. We have a to me, spot. to me, these the words of the scripture are totally opposite of the way the black people were treated at this time. You know, there was no lifting them up, there was no granting them uh anything at all. And so we're not leaning into the word of God as we, uh, and even today, we're still not leaning into the word of God and what we need to be doing. Thank you for saying that. Um, I shouldn't see in the chat, Dr. King was trying to bring Jesus' plan to us today. No equity. Okay. All right. All right. Let's continue. So what was Dr. King expressing as an impact of oppression? Question we, we just shared that, of course, your reaction to that. Um, so now I want to push forward and I would love to hear again, as you, as you, in through this, we, we wrestled with the text. We heard Dr. King share about poverty and, you know, again, the cruel jest of telling a Buddhist, Buddhist man to pull, his own, pull himself up by his own bootstraps. But then the question becomes now I want us to wrestle with is what is violence? When you hear the word violence, what comes to mind? What, what, what is violence to you? Um, put in the chat. Feel free to unmute yourself. What what is violence to you? What is violence? Physical touch or hurt someone? Okay. All right. Forcible harm. Okay, a physical reaction of force intended to, to cause harm. Okay, harming someone. Oh, and, and taking away their power. That's good. That's good. Any others? What is violence? When you hear violence, what is violence? Any action or inaction that causes harm to another. Okay, that's good. That's good. So violence. One of the things that we have to wrestle with is the act that's contrary to God's plan for our lives. Oh, that's a very good one. As we look at the idea of violence, we have to recognize that violence can manifest itself in many ways. Violence can show up in policy. It can show up in mass incarceration. It can show up in racism and sexism and oppression economically, food deserts, theological oppression. I mean, all these ways are ways that violence can show up. It's not just limited to physicality, but violence can show up 
even in what Dr. King was addressing and saying, how can you tell someone who has suffered at the hand of oppression for hundreds of years, how can you tell someone who was suffering at the hand of oppression economically, at the hand of racism, at sexism, uh, poor policy, unjust policy, mass incarceration, poor access to food. And so all these ways are, are violence because again, it's prohibiting, and I love the comments and reactions, that is prohibiting my ability to live and have life and have the life that God has promised each of us as God's creation. And so when you look at the text, again, Luke 14 is a picture of that. It, you know, Jesus said, hey, look, I've come to bring good news to those who are impacted by these issues. And so as you wrestle with that, what is good news to a person who is poor? What is good news to someone who has no health care? What is good news to someone who is, a, who is a war prisoner, freedom, liberation? And so we have to wrestle with the idea that all these things are violent. They are violent in the way that Anne is lived out in various ways, policy, mass incarceration, racism, religion, oppression theologically, oppression economically, food, I mean, food, I mean, there are so many ways. And so one of the things we have to wrestle with and begin to digest is understanding that violence is not just physicality. Violence can show up in many, many ways. And so Dr. King tells us, and, and he said that the time has come for an all-out war against poverty. The rich nations must use their vast resources and wealth to develop the underdeveloped, school the unschooled, and feed the unfed. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. And so right here, Dr. King is, is encouraging us and challenging us to live in love, that we have to make a concerted effort through love to address issues that are affecting and impacting the marginalized, those who are suffering at the hand of, of oppression, who those who are suffering at the hand of hunger even. How do we make sure that we live in love in a way where we address violence that may not be physical, but it could be political, it could be policy, emotional, theological? How do we navigate a space where we live in love in a way where we bring good news to those who are suffering in various ways in our culture. And uh, I love this quote here uh, by Cora Scott King. It says, she says, the greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate actions of its members, a heart of grace and a soul generated by love. And so what we see in Luke 418 is even a picture of love in action. It's love and Jesus saying, hey, I'm here because I love you so much to make sure that I bring good news and address the conditions that the creates that, that that creation is living in. Back to our text. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, set captives free, recover your sight, let the oppressed go free. Here it is. There, this is love in action and addressing the conditions of others in compassion. This is a clear picture of love. And so understanding that love is, the, is, is how we must seek to address and, and be a voice of concern for those who are suffering at the hand of violence, no matter the condition or how it manifests itself in culture. We must 
express and live in a culture of love that addresses, again, the conditions of others in compassion. One of the things that we do a great job at, especially in the church space, in the faith space, as we love to express words to say, I will pray for you, but we would not engage and bring in change for you. And so bringing change for you is saying, I will go beyond the prayer and I, will, and I will pursue a change for your person and your condition. We have to make sure that we don't stop at the prayer, but we pursue and bring change in love. And so again, we must make sure that our goal, our objective, our faith is lived out in love in an open expression in how we address the conditions of God's creation. And so, and, and, and when we do that, rooted in a love, agape love, here it is, overflowing unconditional love for all, including adversaries needed for nonviolent conflict resolution. Dr. King called it love in action, love seeking to preserve and create community, love, which is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative. I love that. Now, the king is saying, look, it's love in action. I want to preserve and create community. It's not all about me. It's about my neighbor. How do I love my neighbor as myself? How do I love those who may be across the street, those who may be the marginalized, those who may be the oppressed, those who may be suffering, those who may be different than me, may think different than me, may act different than me, but I can love and preserve and create and also create community and love. And here it is. And it's purely spontaneous. It's unmotivated. I don't want anything from you but to love you and see you exist and have what God has promised all of us have what God has promised you to live, have food to eat, have have a standing economically, have, have education, have housing, have food, have a living wage. How do we create a construct, a community of love where we address the issues that, that, that create oppression, but live in love and make sure that each of us can be healthy and live well? And here it is also, and also means that love must be creative. How do we in our spaces as we live out, again, this thing called love in our churches, our, our institutions, our organizations, how, how do we engage in creativity and address issues creatively from our own perspective? There, are, there may be ideas and ways that we can address issues that may have never been done before, but you may be the one, we may be the ones to create a new pathway, a new idea to address these issues and do it in love and do it in a way that, again, that embraces nonviolence because I don't want to create a cycle of violence. I want to end it and create the beloved community. So here is the intersection, family. I believe that, again, we argue, we know this, that violence can manifest itself in many ways, but nonviolence is an agape response. It's a love response. And love seeks to address the condition of creation. Our objective, our call, our, our passion should be to address the condition that's impacting creation, be able to live and step outside of ourselves and recognize the condition of those who are in hunger, the condition of those who are unhoused, the condition of those who are being otherized, 
the condition of those who are suffering due to oppression, the condition of those who are being judged by their gender, those who are being judged or oppressed by their sexuality. How do we address the condition of all creation and doing so in love and addressing it in creative ways and bringing about change that's, root, that's rooted in love and expressing and bringing a good news for all of those who are suffering. So here it is, family. As we look at Luke 4, 18, the groundwork that Jesus says for us is, how do we be good news for someone who's suffering? How do we become good news for someone who was hurting? And how do we do it in a nonviolent, agape, loving way? Our goal, our objective should be to look at things differently and to recognize that we can, through love, bring about change and be good news to our culture. We can be good news to our communities. We can be good news to those who are hurting and suffering at the hand of oppression. And we can be good news for someone who has no idea how to navigate the world they live in. But we have the answer. We can be a solution. And we can be creative and address these issues through agape love and recognizing that we have a Jesus who has given the pattern, the framework of how we bring good news to those who are suffering. Family, our job is to address the conditions of creation in compassion. Questions, thoughts, feedback. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? I'd love to hear from you after hearing that. You know, Pastor Damon, you talked about violence um, manifesting itself in many ways. There was a question from um, Wesley at UCF in the chat. Can neutrality or indifference be considered violence? Can you talk to that? Absolutely. Um, first thing I would I would encourage um, everyone to go back and look at Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail, um, because in that letter, Dr. King addresses very poignantly um, that issue. Um, silence can be complicity. Um, neutrality can be complicity, and so I think that's even what we can even extract from what we shared a few weeks ago from the Good Samaritan story is, you know, seeing the condition of someone who's suffering, but choosing to walk across the street and pretend I don't see it. Uh, knowing that there's someone suffering from oppression, someone who, who's hungry, and I choose not to see it. Recognizing the impact of the policy on a certain people group is choosing to not see it. And so, yes, it can be because, again, it's perpetuating the violence and allowing the impact and allowing the breach to continue and allowing the pain to go on. And so if if we are truly saying we want to live in love and, uh, and address the conditions of those of, of God's creation, then we can't afford to be neutral, nor can we afford to be silent, but we must do our part. And even creatively so, as Dr. King alludes to, uh, even being creative in how we do that.
Thank you for that, Pastor Damien. If there are other questions, comments, reflections, feel free to type it in the chat box or unmute yourselves and ask and comment as we dive into this some more. I, I liked it when you said um, that each of us, well, this is the way I received it. Each of us has a flavor or a gift in addressing the conditions and um, being able to, to speak to it or to, whether it's through demonstration, whether it's through personally um, helping someone else, but each of us has a a gift to address the condition and to show that kind of love that we were created to to show. So I I heard that when you were when you were speaking. Absolutely, I think oftentimes one one of the things that we that paralyzes us is that we may feel like we have nothing to offer. You know what? No, what can my voice do? What I mean, I'm just one person, or I'm a small church, I'm a small group. Um, but you know, again, being creative in what we can do, and again, how do we engage in social media? How we engage in conversations in our immediate um, sphere of influence? You know, how how do we use what we can do to be a voice for change and expression and living in love uh, in a very real way? to make sure that we are good news to those who are suffering in some way. I, I was going to, oh. oh, so you go ahead. I was going to just add, um, to adding to the question from uh, you guys, UCF, about the indifference that also kind of remembering the knock at midnight, um, even Dr. King goes on and says, like, how many times a church has been indifferent with answering the knock? And, and he was specifically talking about, like, are we, you know, when we're indifferent at a knock, are we basically taking away that bread of life, that bread of love? Um, and what does that look like in our world? So when you go back and you read into that, when you um, put up against the Luke text, like when we are indifferent at a knock, is that violent to someone asking for that bread that's crying out, that's knocking, that's begging, um, you know, whether it's economic freedom, whether it's, you know, facing racial injustice, what does that look like? Um, so I would say Dr. King does speak on that a lot especially when it comes to the church response, the historical response when someone's knocking um, and how we've been indifferent in our answers and our, when we knock, um, whether it's racial, whether it's economic, sexuality, um, but it can be violent to that population knocking. Yeah, my question was, um, you know, reading through the nonviolent training that you all offer, one of the 
aspects that the training talked about was how we can even experience violence in the workplace through, you know, I guess just like workplace drama. And so my question is, can you give us an example of violence in like a work setting and then how we can use King in philosophy to deal with not just even the work setting, like I'm thinking about students, they got roommate issues, something that's pretty common, you know? Um, and I know they can be violent with their language with each other. And so give us an example of, of ex to expand this metaphor for day-to-day -day settings and then give us like Kingian philosophies to deal with something like a, a roommate issue. Absolutely. Um, one, one of the, you know, nonviolence, one of the major uh, principles that I, that I, I, I try to employ myself as much as possible um, is the idea of one, well, actually, actually a step of information gathering. Um, and what that does for me is it allows and creates the space to have conversation. One of the things that we tend to do in culture is that we tend to approach the idea of conflict and Angelo you know, can you know he's a uh, aficionado when it comes to conflict conversation, um, but wrestling with the idea of how we approach conflict, and we tend to approach conflict with the idea that the only way I can navigate it is I seek to destroy you, and so nonviolence is a is a really a way of living that says I can disagree with you, but I don't have to destroy you. I can I, I can have an issue with you but I don't have to destroy you. So how do I employ information gathering, have conversation with you to at least ascertain, okay, one, what's really going on here? What, what's at the root of what, I may, what we may be experiencing? And I love the fact that nonviolence also, it does not divorce me from understanding the experience of those who may be causing me harm or causing me pain. And so I have to be able to, again, to learn and to listen to the other person's experience as well. And so how do I have conversation and engage in a way where we where we both can gather information and navigate and find, okay, what's going on here? And how can we, again, bring about resolution, navigate conflict healthily, but also find a way to move beyond it in love? And so again, workplace, roommate conflict, how, how do we talk? Because oftentimes, especially now in our current culture, we don't, we don't have conversation. We have content to post. We don't, we don't, so what happens is I have an issue with this person. I'm going to post it in the content. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to share with somebody else. Well, versus engaging with that person and learning and understanding what's going on. What, what may, what I may have done to cause offense. What I may have done to, you know, to, you know, add to the difficulty of conflict. So being able to have that confirmation, that conversation, information gathering, but also, again, love, sense of solution. How can we find a mutual way of navigating and working through this where we honor both of our humanities, both in the workplace even, uh, and even in a roommate issue? Uh, again, workplace issues, again, you know, can be a bit more tenuous um, because we, we, we can navigate sometimes uh, the, the, the challenge of perceived hierarchy. Um, but, but, but still, how do we navigate and, and again, employ information gathering conversation and navigate a, you know, a space where 
our humanities both are honored uh, and we can live in a love express in a nonviolent way. And I would just add to that. Um, one, one thing I've noticed for the past couple of years is that especially really studying conflict transformation, <laughs> um, especially in the faith space, we also have a tendency to let culture in the world um, impact us in our faith space, like how we handle conflict. And what I mean by that is some of us still act on that eye for an eye, tooth, tooth, tooth for a tooth um, with our behaviors and mannerisms. And so the, the real question is like, how do we love? And one thing that when you look at the principles and steps, Dr. King really says, we're doing this all with the spirit of reconciliation. And now on the realistic side is reconciling does not mean you're going to end up where you first started off with those happy feelings. It's not going to look the same. What it can do, though, is like um, Reverend Madison was saying, that it allows you the information got to seek understanding. Um, and that that's more of a personal growth of do I really want to sit at this table with this person and say, hey, can you share why are you acting like this way? What did I trigger? You know, um, and because with that, that also means we have to sit with how someone else is responding to our actions, our reactions, and putting us in a spot of saying, okay, if I did that, kind of an ownership sense of it. If I did that, you know, apologizing and navigating like, well, I did not mean that. My intention was not that, but the impact was this. So there's more realistic approach on it when it comes to the conversations of who are you in conflict? Are you defensive? Are you reactionary? Are you confront uh, confronting? Um, and there are biblical texts. Sometimes you need space, space to really, you know, assess, observe how you're feeling. Um, is it justified? Is it legit? You can go through all these things. Um, but space is one thing. And then, but the question is how you re-enter that conversation. How do you bring it to that person that you're having conflict, especially with roommates? Um, I've had conflict with roommates. I've had five roommates. <laughs> so we had conflict quite a few times, um, especially when it came to chores, house chores, who was falling, how do you approach it? Um, but when you look at that, first you have to look at conflict as a personal growth, a personal um, action. How do you see yourself within that? And it's one thing about if you have a spirit of reconciliation, you could always come back to that conversation, but always check with that person and say, hey, if you're ready for this conversation, I'm ready for it. You know, I want to address what happened in last conversation. Um, because what happens is you start butting heads, you're not going anywhere. So the spirit reconciliation kind of like redirects it where you're going somewhere. Now you're trying to be constructive with it, um, especially if you're in the same space, you know, and then you can be like, hey, we're not going to be where we're at, where we started. But the reality is we can get somewhere where we're okay with each other. We've learned each other's triggers. We've learned each other's um, differences. We don't have to agree, but we can still uplift each other when it comes to certain things. Um, but yeah, I think the reality, a lot of people have like this utopian view of it, but the reality is reconciliation is going to look different uh, when you tackle or confront conflict, even in a roommate situation, domestic house situation. Um, 
that's the reality of how people react. Thank you for sharing that, Angelo. Um, that was very thorough and I think helpful to hear, especially um, when you started talking about reconciliation looking different and being very contextual. Um, if, you know, if there are any more questions that people have, you feel free to unmute yourself and ask those questions. Um, you could also chat, uh, type them in the chat and I'll be monitoring those as well. Uh, we had one about, are the recordings available? And yes, they they are available for those who might need them. Uh, but I'm wondering, can you say more about reconciliation? I think I hear that word um, talked about a lot in you know, the work of anti-racism and especially um, when it comes to like bringing different ethnic groups together. Um, what, what, really, what really does reconciliation mean for groups that have, that might've had you know, some of the conflict um, or have experienced violence from, you know, the one from another in some of the ways that we've talked about in our study. How do you really engage in that kind of way in a group setting, um, in a community setting where there might've been, you know, those, those factors going on? What does reconciliation look like? How do we get there? Yeah, what does it look like? I'll let Angela start. Oh. <laughs> I was like, who started? Um, so, so if a conflict, if conflict is a part of life and it's always going to be a part of life, whether in the workspace, at home, community, um, other personal issues, we have to also understand that reconciliation is also part of the journey of life itself. Um, so starting with there, so just like our faith walk, our faith walk is going to look different throughout the times. We're going to look at certain scriptures different throughout the time. Our relationship with God could be more intimate. It could be more pulled away. So when we look at that, we can look at conflict and reconciliation in the same way. But that also doesn't mean we have to completely separate. Um, and also, I would think, start with the word concile. Uh, concile itself, um, because reconcile is basically repairing, recovering. Um, Consile is acknowledging that, hey, there was nothing here before. Um, there was no relationship before. Reconciling and saying we had a relationship, we had some type of thing going on, we have to repair that. So um, kind of seek the understanding of both those. And then um, like in the faith space, when we really talk about reconciliation, how do you, ho how do you host a space for that? How do you host conversations? There's a there's a lot of layers to it, but basically it's meaning it's it's basically saying, hey, we need to address power. Who has more power? Who has more voice? Whose voice is louder? Um, is it gender specific? Is it racial specific? Is it ethnic language specific? So there's layers of power. Um, so reconciliation, when you do things in the spirit of reconciliation, it means acknowledge these structures, acknowledge that, but also kind of like holding accountability. Hey, I'm not going to use that. Um, power. 
I'm going to let that other person give them space for power to speak, to be heard. So starting there, that mutuality piece, and then having a goal. I think what happens is a lot of times with reconciliation, there's not a goal. Um, it's more like a one-off thing. We sat, we talked, you know, we'll be cordial <laughs> every time we see each other. That's it. But then the question is, reconciliation still needs two parties. Um, like I'll give you a perfect example. Um, there's a big, especially in the faith space, conflict space. Forgiveness is a single person. Like there's power within forgiving you taking that power to forgive someone. You don't need the other party there. Reconciliation needs two parties um, throughout even the secular space, acknowledge it, faith space, acknowledge it. There's two parties going on. But if you completely pull out and divorce yourself, separate yourself from it, now it's more of a solo mission and it's no longer reconciliation. So I think we have to acknowledge that, um, give space to that, and then I think faith leaders, even college students, host some controversial conversations. Acknowledge though, how do you feel? Do you pull out? Do you, are you passive? Are you confrontational? Do you need, you know, are you more reserved? Are you um, extrovert, introvert? A lot of these things clash. Um, but I would say reconciliation, especially when we look at nonviolence, the principles of it, um, and even our, in our faith space, and we look at texts, it's never the same. So it's never going to end up being back to the same relationship with God. Yes. But with people, we have to understand um, attitudes, beliefs, values, all these things feel threatened. Um, there's an enemy perspective that we feel towards someone, you know, when we're feeling attacked or when we feel um, someone is just utilizing their power to ignore us, dismiss us, those type of things. But yeah, reconciliation, it's a process, it's a journey of life. Like I said, conflict transforms. To be a part of that, I think there's beauty in that, especially if God is with us and he's with us in our lowest times, our highest times, our conflict, you know, there's beauty in all that. So how do we share that with someone, especially if we're trying to reconcile? That's a lifelong journey um, that calls us to not divorce or separate. And just to add to that, um, one of the things that is probably the most uncomfortable part of all that Angela shared is also a willingness to see through somebody else's lens of experience. Just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening. And so oftentimes, you know, you mentioned Reverend Jana, the fact that, okay, how do we have this you know, idea of reconciliation? amongst people who are impacted by, who are suffering at the hand of, and et cetera. And so how do you again, engage in that process but being open enough to see somebody else's worldview, somebody else's experience, to have compassion and enough agape love to recognize that somebody else's life experience may not be yours. And, and, and we must be committed to not discounting and discrediting someone's lived experience. That's that that's critically important because someone who's suffering at the hand of oppression is lived experience. Someone who's marginalized, that's lived experience. Someone who is suffering at the hand of racism, that's lived experience. Um, and so we cannot divorce ourselves or discredit their lived experience 
otherwise we can't get to where Angela talked about because we are again, you know, like at midnight, you know, we're we 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 avoid the knock that that that's not real. I don't care about that um, because it's too disruptive to my own reality. And so, how do we maintain openness to experiencing, understanding, hearing, and loving through someone else's lived reality? Thank you both for that. There was um, a follow-up question that was typed in the, the chat box uh, as you two had started talking. Can there be reconciliation without reparations? What do you have to say about that? <laughs> so reparations comes with a heavy, <laughs> heavy um, topic, but um, so, when reparations is spoken about, that's usually meaning one group unfairly, unjustly has been exploited. There's economic, um, so that's very communal. Some people do seek personal reparations, whether it's um, in workplace, moving up leadership, promotions, and all these things. So some, depending on that, but on a communal um, side, I think it's controversial, but I know for me personally, <laughs> Seeing this, I think you can't have reconciliation without reparations. And I say this because of, even Dr. King mentions it, the history, the generational um, unfair, exploitative um, slavery from to Jim Crow, to redlining, to all these others. Um, even at the, when you look at the 80s, the whole crack epi um, epidemic, um, but the unfair of arrests and mass incarceration so when you look at all these things that were systemic, economic, economically, we know who's been hurt um, the most and been injured the most and who's been beneficial. So there is an economic piece with that. And I say this, this is more on the national level um, because there will be people that say, this is more the genuine side, um, the, the less genuine side. They'll be like, well, we gave them money, that's it. What else are they gonna ask for? So that's a heart issue. Um, even Dr. King said, I can make laws that um, can re uh, restrain someone from killing me. That's great. But that still doesn't change their behavior, their attitudes, that's a heart issue. Um, so reconciliation, there's a spirit of genuine mutuality and reparations is hard to do that. Like we can legalize it, we can put a system of it, um, when it comes to economic payments um, and all that stuff. But there is a hard, it's a hard thing to acknowledge or embrace when the other party is doing it either for performance, <laughs> performative, there's performative issues with that. Oh, we're just doing it to meet the quota mentality. Um, we're just doing this to, you know, hush up the other group that's asking for it. So the spirit of reconciliation has to be genuine and mutual. Um, and I'll, and I probably know, obviously, Pastor, you probably have something to say on this, but before um, I pass it to him, I want you to think of like apartheid, South Africa. There was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened. So it allowed those who perpetuated apartheid and those who were the victims of it. And there was huge backlash because those who perpetuated did not want to share their truth. So it was, and then the victims wanted to hear it. But because one side was kind of forced due to the commission, 
it was not genuinely accepted um, when someone said, I'm sorry, or, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't genuinely accepted. It was, there was a lot of work that went into it, but we have to prepare for that. If, you know, if that goes that way, we have to really look at the heart of the people and the spirit of reconciliation. Yeah, I don't want to, again, I echo what Angela's mentioned. Uh, I will add this, though. When we look at it from a, a, a macro level, um, no, you cannot have, you can't fully reconcile without having preparations. Why? Because preparation itself, when you look at it defensively, is really repairing a breach. You know, how, how do we fix the breach? You know, and that can be relational. That can be economic, again, what Angela mentioned. That can be systemic. That can be, again, theological. Uh, that can be, again, societal. You know, so how, how do we repair the breach in a way that allows us to reconcile? Because we have to address, first of all, that there was a breach. You know, so if, if, if it's my roommate, you know, and you agreed to wash the dishes and you didn't do it, and we have conflict now, okay, so how do we repair the breach in our agreement like you said you wash dishes, you know, um, you know, looking at it from a, again, a national level, historically, like Angela mentioned in terms of slavery, black codes, Jim Crow, you know, and the like, um, you know, America made a promise in its constitution, you know, that, that you know, that there, you know, there's equality and freedom and justice for all. So how do we repair the breach of years of enslavement, years of oppression at Jim Crow? And black codes, years of mass incarceration, and you know how do we repair the breach of of again the impact that had on on groups economically, academically, uh, societally? How do we repair that breach? So we have to not only talk about the problem, but what is the next step in addressing the problem and repairing what has happened? Amen. Thank you both. We definitely have uh, been given a lot to think about, to meditate on, and to actually apply to our lives as we engage in this lifelong process. I'm, I'm appreciative of the language. I think that, Angelo, you included in your answer that it's sometimes we think it's this one and done, like, you know, we had this moment or day of reconciliation and we kind of pat ourselves on the back, but that it is a lifelong process that we are invited into, um, not only just to participate, but to embody, to take on um, as we become, I think um, Pastor Damien you said, be, we become love um, as we stand in the gap and meet people's needs and do and engage in that work of, of nonviolence and reconciliation. So you certainly have given us a lot to think about and to apply, not just this evening, but throughout the last four weeks. And we are incredibly grateful. Uh, I know I am grateful for uh, this opportunity to have learned from the wisdom that you have shared and the wisdom that you've shared from the words, the actions of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So thank you, thank you, Angelo. Thank you, Pastor Damien. We have definitely appreciated it. Thank you for um, just leading us in, in this time of study. And this is uh, our last study. And so I just wanna express 
a moment of gratitude and to invite everyone who is present today that while this is the last uh, of the study that we have been engaging in for the last four weeks, we do have nonviolent training coming up. You should have received an email. And if you have not received an email, um, the registration page and link will um, be posted shortly in the chat. And so make sure that you uh, access that, uh, bring a friend and bring a neighbor, bring someone from your church, your ministry with you to that. It'll be every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on Zoom, just like this study for the month of March. Um, and so we want to invite you to continue to be engaged in the work as we transition to uh, nonviolent training, which we certainly need as we engage in this work. So thank you. And that link is now in the chat from Wesley UCF. So thank you for that, Erwin. You can click on that link right there in your chat and register. You can uh, pull it up and save it. You can share that with other people. So please plan uh, to join in. Uh, that nonviolent training as we continue the great work. And from a faith perspective, the great work to which God has called us as children of God who recognize intentionally that all children are made in the image of God. Amen. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Angelo. Thank you, Pastor Damien. If you have any last final departing words, I'll invite you to share those. But otherwise, we just want to express gratitude. And thank you so much. Well, I just say thank you so much for allowing us to share all these past few weeks. Um, you know, we look forward to having all of you, hopefully, uh, in the uh, the Better Together uh, training uh, as we strive to empower and equip us to, to be better together and to uh, live in love in a very meaningful way. So, again, thank you so much. We are very appreciative and look forward to doing more in partnership with you all. Yeah, and I just echo all that and thank you for having us. And, you know, some people in the chat share today, like never heard of this clip, never heard of this speech, never heard of these writings, you know. Um, there's so much writings, even that me and Damien have to read, you know, we read through these things. Um, so there's so much that we also learn. And then we also learn, especially um, coming from a UMC perspective, you know, what does it mean for us um, to really show that love in action what does that look like in our context? How can we collaborate? Um, but then again, like, you know, everything's about learning, lifelong learning and application. Uh, it just doesn't stop at the book. It stop, you know, it starts with our feet moving with the book in our hand. So uh, but yeah, but thank you for letting us be in this space with you all, share this space, and um, introducing new sermons, voices, you know, um, as it's also learning for us too. Well, thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing all of you on the nonviolent training as we transition to that. And otherwise, we pray that God would bless you and keep you until we meet again. Take care. Thank you for joining us tonight and over the last few weeks. And we just pray that you have a good evening. Thank you all for being a part of this study as well. Take care. <laughs>